0: Hello there. How are we all doing this morning? Everyone well? Getting there? Hands up if you've completed your Christmas shopping already. Oh, check you guys out. Hands up if you're almost there. Okay, keep your hand up if you're almost there. Hands up if you have not done any of your shopping yet. Good work. Okay, put your hand down if you're almost there, but keep it up if you've not done anything yet. Okay, people who have not done anything yet, look at the people around you. Find someone who's got their hand down. They are your Christmas shopping buddy for next year, okay? (laughs) They will keep you accountable and make sure that your wife slash girlfriend does not end end up with four court flowers for Christmas next year, okay? buddy up people, this is what we need to do. Uh, Today we're going to be carrying on in our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, We've been going through this book for the last few months now, um, and we have just been pulling it out just bit by bit, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, just to see all the good things that are in here. This book um, contains so much stuff, and there's so many issues that Paul, who was the author of this letter, writes about that were relevant for the church 2,000 years ago, but they're also just as relevant for the church today. so much going on that we can just draw from his experience on. So we're going to dive into that together. Um, Last week... Our main pastor, uh, Chuck, he was over with us and he was speaking on the gift of tongues. Um, if you missed that one, I would really ask that you go away um, and check that out on our website. If you're not sure what the gift of tongues is, it's not making out, it's not another word for that. It's a specific thing in the Bible. So go away. That talk is on the website um, and you can have a listen to that. I'd really encourage you to give that a listen. But this week, uh, we're moving on uh, and Paul finishes up. It's in chapter 14 and it's the second half of this chapter. And basically what Paul is doing uh, at the second half of this chapter is t- telling us how do we have a healthy church what are the things that we can be doing that make sure our church works well that people are loved that people are cared for that people are welcome but also that make sure that we are going deeper in our relationship with God and not just kind of showing up uh, doing a bit of singing and then heading home again and not changing at all he wants to create a church in Corinth which is where he's writing the letter from that changes people that people come in and they can't leave the same. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. How do we do that? So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and it's going to be verse 26 to 40. Um, Put your hand up if you've not got a Bible and you would like one to be reading along with today. Uh, Perfect. If the people at the end of the rows where the Bibles are could pass them in, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, full stop, please take this one away with you. Uh, that is our gift from us to you. You're very welcome to just keep that and use it and highlight it and put notes on it and write your name in the front. Um, I used to write in my Bibles when I was a kid uh, to Scott from Jesus. Um, so you feel free to do that as well. Um, just gives it the personal touch. Uh, so we'll read along together. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 to 40. It says this, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. This is an interesting bit that we will come back to, so don't worry about that. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So it's wise words from Paul again um, as he tells us what is a healthy church. That's what we're looking at today. What does a healthy church look like? What do we have to do? What things do we have to observe? What things do we have to seek to make sure that we are going deeper with God and not just turning up on a Sunday or during the week and just not going anywhere? And the first thing that comes out of this passage for me is this, that we all have something to bring to the table Paul makes it really clear from the word "go that church is not a place where you turn up and one person does all the work there 's not one superstar at the front who uh, who sings and dances and teaches and although they are all in my gift set that <laughs> that 's not the way church works church Church dance to a dance. Uh, church is supposed to be a place where um, we all come and we all have something to bring. It's not about one or two people. It's about every single person coming and not just coming in to sit down and say, "I'm just going to come and consume church today." But coming in with the mindset of, "How can I bless the church today? What is God saying to me that might change someone's life this morning?" We all have something to bring, whether it's a, a song of worship whether it's a prayer, whether it's a prophetic word for the church or for a person, whether it is um, a, a reading that God's given us, a scripture to give out. We all have something to bring on a Sunday. It says that in verse 26, doesn't it? What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? because even when we feel like we've got nothing to bring, God is saying that we are more than qualified, isn't he? Even when we feel like we've got too many faults, too many flaws, and that we've made too many mistakes, and that we couldn't possibly be on the team, God still chooses us. You know, if we were lined up, uh, like in primary school football, with two captains ready to choose a team, nobody would get picked last for church. We would all be picked at the same time, because we're all equally important. Um, it reminds me a bit of like, uh, you know, like, who, who's quite into cycling here? Does anyone like follow like top cycling, love the Tour de France and stuff? This is not going to be an analogy that's going to go down well then. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, top level cycling teams though, basically there's one guy who is like the champion of the team. Like he's the one that everyone else is working around to make sure that they finish top. And so basically what happens is there's a whole raft of people in this team that make sure that they perform well. So the team, the, the sort of leader of the team, he's got teammates, and they take it in turn cycling in front of him to, like, break the wind flow so that he doesn't get as tired, and they support him and help him as he go along. Then you've got guys that drive in a backup car and, like, pass little snacks and fluids out to him as he goes along. Then you've got, like people who do massages and stuff like that at night who, like, prepare them for the next day and get them all ready. And then there's people who, like, analyse all the statistics. They look at, like, the way the road curves and what the wind's going to be like and when, for, when should they be pedalling fast and when should they be pedalling slow. And then you've got sponsors of the team who put in all the money to employ all the people in the team. And there's a whole raft of people that are all equally important, although there's one champion The champion wouldn't be a champion if he didn't have the team behind him. And that's exactly what it's like with church. There's a very similar thing. We have a champion. Jesus is our champion. He went to the cross and died on our behalf so that we could be set free. And not just us, but the world could be set free. But in order for Jesus to be the champion of church, we need to work together as a team in church. We all have something to bring. No matter what your background is, no matter what talents you have, what passions you have, what skills you have, whether you're a morning person or an evening person, whether you're a vegetarian or a meat eater, it doesn't matter. We all have one common goal. We want to make the champion the champion. We want to see Jesus' name lifted high above all else. And we want the world to know that the church is a place where anyone can come that they will be welcomed in with open arms and they can encounter Jesus as they are. Not having changed, having put on their smart clothes, having started behaving themselves, but literally as they are, they can come and meet with the Savior of the world. I just love that church is like that. That church is a place that welcomes people in with open arms and says, you know what? We've been waiting so long for you to come. We have been desperate for you to join our family. Come on in. There's not many places in the world that are like that. And there's not many places in the world that are like that without an agenda for personal gain somewhere. But the church is. I love that. I love that that's what the church is all about. We all have something to bring, though, don't we? In order for that to work properly, we all have to bring the things that God's putting on our heart whether that's on a sunday morning if we're leading worship or praying for people or welcoming them welcoming them at the door or logistics see if you're on logistics or worship team can you put your hand up for a wee second if you're on any logistics or worship team can we just give these guys the most massive round of applause and i'll tell you why in a second You might not be aware of this, but these guys turn up faithfully at 9 a.m. every Sunday uh, when most of us will still be in our beds and they unpack vans, plug in cables, practice songs. The band also meet on a Thursday night to practice together. They give an evening to practice so that what they bring on a Sunday morning is top quality. And they give away so much of their time at really awkward times so that we can do church. And I love that. That's what we're all about as a church. want to be a church where we all come and bring what we have to bring? You know, maybe for some of us, we're bringing prayers or prophetic words. We're going to look a wee bit more at prophecy in a minute, or a tongue, or a word of instruction, or a revelation, but we all have something to bring. I love in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then again, in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying then prophesy according with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. The church is God's vehicle for giving people a little glimpse of what it is going to be like in the kingdom of heaven. We are the reflection of God's beauty on earth. Is anyone feeling the pressure a little bit with that statement? Do you feel like the reflection of God's beauty on earth? Maybe when your hair's done properly and stuff like that, I don't know. Um, but we are God's plan, aren't we? We are God's master plan for showing the world what it is like to be in a relationship with him and to give the world a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. I love that. Especially in the world in the state that it's in just now. Where else will you find a bunch of people who all come together with a whole bunch of different things going on in their lives but who say, do you know what? We want to welcome you here and we want to bring you closer to God and we will do everything that we can to help you grow in your relationship with him. Where else will you find that in the world? So the church is God's plan for showing his kingdom but in order for it to work to, to properly we all have to come and bring the things that he's put on our hearts, don't we? We all have to do that. The next thing that jumped out for me there is that um, the church is here to build up and encourage people, isn't it? The church is here to build up and encourage people. And one of the main... uh, ways that we do that. One of the main ways that God speaks directly into people's lives is this area of prophecy um, that he talks about here. Now, some of us will know what prophecy is. We'll be prophesying over people all the time. We'll be in it. Some of us will have heard about prophecy, but we're not too sure about it. Others of us, we might think that prophecy is the thing that Voldemort uses to kill Harry Potter. Um, All of the above will probably all fall into one of those categories. But basically, in this book, Paul gives us a little snapshot of what is prophecy. And how does God use it to speak to his people? Um, Earlier on in chapter 14 and verse 4, it says this, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And I think what Paul is saying here is, I would rather you prophesy, because prophecy builds up other people. Prophecy is outwards looking. When you speak a prophetic word into someone's life, it's not about you, it's not about what you gain from it, but it's about giving someone else an encouragement in the Lord. And the context for him saying that was that the church that he's in in Corinth, um, they are a new church they're learning how to do a church, and they're working out how does this whole thing work and basically what 's happening is the whole church um, has started just going a bit mental on Sunday mornings when they all come together. So they're all shouting over each other. They're all trying to pray in tongues louder than the person next to them. Basically what's happening is everyone wants uh, everyone else in the church to see that they are holy and good at what they're doing. So they're all giving it, they're all like just to make it look as though that they've got it all together. And Paul's saying, please don't do that. He's like, pray in tongues, that's great. Don't all of you do it in once. Do it at home. Do it in private because praying in tongues is between you going to God. And he's saying, I would much rather you prophesy because prophecy is God coming to us. God speaking to people through you. It's incredible, isn't it? And a prophetic word, I don't know if you've ever received a prophetic word or given a prophetic word. If this is all new for this morning, we'll try and make this as easy and simple as possible so that we can all... Um, have a go at it and try doing this stuff because I really believe that prophecy is a gift that we all have, that we can all do. Um, and a prophetic word changes a situation. For me, um, one of the most uh, recent prophetic words that someone gave us, Sarah and I, we, we uh, just moved into a new house. But prior to looking in that house, we were really praying about where should we be living and um, what should we be doing. And we worked out we, we had probably about enough money for a two-bedroom flat was what we were doing. So we kind of focused on that, started looking at flats, and then uh, the, the pastoral team at church prayed for us one day and they were just saying like praying some stuff over us and they said that they felt like God had said to them that we would have a house and not a flat, um, that it would be a place where people could come, it would be like a refuge for people, um, and that it would be um, more than we thought we could afford. And so we went away and we thought, okay, we'll take that, we'll see what happens. Um, and maybe a week or so later we found the house that we're currently in, Um, and it's a house, and it had been on the market for a month, which just doesn't happen in Aberdeen, like, it just doesn't happen, like, everything sells almost immediately when it goes on, and so we went to view it, and the estate agent who was there was like, oh, I can't understand why it's not selling, like, everything sells in Aberdeen, and we were like, okay, and then the estate agent starts saying, like, basically, if you offer under the asking price, I'm pretty sure they'll accept it, and we were like, nobody ever says that, (laughs) like, that's just completely unheard of, so we were like, this is Unbelievable, so we did that. We went away and we offered what we could afford and we got the house. And it was amazing and it it was that moment where we had our eyes set on one thing but God had another plan altogether. But it took the faithfulness of the people who were around us to pray that over us so that we knew that that's where he was so that when that came up it was clear that it was God that was in that and not just us in our own plans. A prophetic word from God is an incredible gift. And it's an incredible gift that we can give to someone. So how do we do that? Then let's look just quickly at how do we give, how can we be open to receiving words for the people around us? And how can we be open to speaking into the people's lives around about us? And there's a few things that jump out in this passage um, and, and in the rest of the Bible. The first thing is this, in Second Peter um, chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing about prophecy is this, it's not about us, Um, it's not about how creative we are or how accurate we might be at predicting the future, it's got nothing to do with us basically, we're just faithful servants and saying what we feel like God is saying to us um, it's not like we are in control of someone else's destiny. You know, when you're given a prophetic word, it's not your words. It's God's word speaking through you. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the awkward situation of watching um, a really bad psychic live. Has anyone ever seen anything like that? I basically was tortured with this once. And it's pa- it was painful to watch as I watched this person um, start very broad. And they were like, I just sensed that there's someone in this room who has a mum. And they were like, okay. <laughs> Most people are in that category and you know and uh, narrowed it down got to one person eventually started trying to guess this person's mum's name and they were like, I just feel your mum, she starts with a C doesn't it it's like it's clear, clear and she's like no and she's like Sandra San- no and then eventually got to Esmeralda was the mum's name and then just got more and more painful, that's not what we are called to do here, we're not called to be people who try and eke out facts from people and try and guess um, little things so that we can speak into the lives, basically we're called to be faithful to God, we ask God if he has Something to say to people. If we get something, we give it. If we don't, we don't. It's that simple. We're called to be people who bring God's words and not our own words. Secondly, uh, we have to ask God and seek God for what He's saying to someone. You know, we have a responsibility to go to God and say, God, I'm just praying for this person. Is there anything that you want to speak to them just now? I'm knocking on the door. I'm asking, is there anything you want to say to them? It says that in Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 to 11, doesn't it? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, find. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. God is a good father and he wants to give good gifts to his children. And so when we go to God and we ask him for good gifts for one of his children, he's not going to withhold that information from you. He's not going to sit there and be like, well, you've not actually read your Bible enough this week, so because you've not done what you should do, I'm, I'm going to withhold that other person's blessing from them. That's not how God works. When we ask, we receive. When we knock, the door opens. When we seek, we find. But we have a responsibility to do the asking. You know, we need to ask God, God, is there anything you're saying for this person today? Is there anything that you want to speak into their lives that's important for them that they need to hear today that's going to change their life, their situation, their current circumstance. And God will speak to us. The third thing is this. It's not a unique thing that only one or two people in the world might be able to do. Paul says that in verse 31, doesn't he? He says, for you can all prophesy. He doesn't say the special prophets can prophesy. He doesn't say that one or two of you can do it. He says, for you can all prophesy so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. If there was only one or two people who were able to prophesy, only a few people would hear from God ever in a year. But the fact of the matter is God speaks through all of us. I don't know if you've ever felt like God speaks through you, if you even feel like that's a possibility, but I want to assure you today that God can speak through you. Do you feel like he could do that? Is that something that you think God could do, or does that just feel like... No, not me. Definitely not me. Maybe the special people, but not me. Because the truth is that God speaks through all of us. We can all prophesy so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And we all have to prophesy. If everyone's going to be instructed and encouraged, we all have to be speaking into people's lives, don't we? We all have to be seeking God for what he is saying at any given moment. So that's a bit of a background on prophecy, who can do it, what we can do it. I just want to touch quickly on what does it actually look like You know, we're probably sitting here just now saying, you've talked about prophetic words, Scott. What is that? Do I get a letter in the post? Does someone send me a telegram? Will it pop up in my spam? Do I have to go looking for it in my junk mail? Well, it's pretty pretty straightforward. In the Bible, God appears to people in uh, many different ways when he's speaking a direct word to them. Sometimes uh, it's in dreams We see that in the Old Testament where God gives a dream um, to King Nebuchadnezzar or he gives a dream to Pharaoh to, to warn them about something that's about to happen and somebody comes and interprets that dream for them. But God speaks to them in the form of a dream. Other times, it's in a word of knowledge. Uh, And basically, a word of knowledge is just when God gives you almost a download of information that tells you about something that's going on in someone's life that you would have no idea of knowing about. We see that in the story of Jesus when he meets the lady at the well, doesn't he? And she's sat there just minding her own business, drawing up some water. And Jesus just tells her her whole life story, basically, in a couple of sentences. And she runs off into town, doesn't she? And she's so encouraged. And she says, come and meet the man who told me all I've ever done. So you get like that, a word of knowledge. Sometimes he speaks in a picture. You know, God often uses pictures like in our minds to show us what he's talking about. He did that uh, with Ezekiel, didn't he, when he was showing him the valley of the dry bones when he was speaking to him about Israel and how they were coming back to life. He showed him this picture in his mind of dry bones, a valley, and then God breathing over them and the muscles and everything. They all came to life. So he can sometimes show us a picture that we can interpret. And then sometimes you might give you a scripture as well, just a specific part of the Bible that's to speak into someone's lives um, that you might think, oh, that's a verse that works for here and that God's speaking that to you. So there's loads of different ways that God can communicate through us to his people. But how do you know it's God, I guess, is the big question. How do you know, like, is this just me? Am I just making this stuff up? Have I just got this going on in my head? Um, I guess I can't say for certain for all of us. In my experience of it, basically when God's speaking to me, it feels a bit different from what my normal thoughts would be like. So when God gives me a picture for someone, it's not the kind of picture that I would normally think about in my head, you know. It's not the kind of thing that would naturally pop into my head. It's not about, you know, food, which is usually where my thoughts are, or football, or anything like that. It's a bit different, and you can tell it's just not quite what you would normally, what you would normally be thinking about. And, and so it's something that might just come out of the blue for you, and it's just a case of listening and then your responsibility is to give that word or picture or scripture or dream to the person and be faithful in that. And sometimes you will get it wrong. You know, sometimes it just won't happen at all. I remember praying for someone one year and I thought I had a very specific word for them um, at Clan, which was a big Christian sort of festival thing that happened down south. And I maybe went on for a couple of minutes about this really specific thing. I think it was about to do with some sort of job. Um, And I got to the end of it, and I was like, does any of that make sense for you? Expecting him to be completely bowled over, and the guys went, no. And I was like, okay. But basically, we'll get it wrong, and that's okay, um, because the next thing that Paul says uh, in verse 29 is others should weigh carefully what is said. So there's there's a responsibility when you give the word, and then there's a responsibility when you receive a prophetic word as well. Sometimes you will get it wrong. But basically, when you receive a prophetic word, you don't just accept it as truth. You don't just say like, oh, that's brilliant. I'm just going to do that. So if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you should go to uh, India, you know, Andrew would have weighed that up and thought about it and prayed about it before he did it. You wouldn't just say, oh, right, well, I wasn't planning on doing that, but I'm just going to go now. That's fine. I'm going to go and do it. We have a responsibility to weigh up what is said. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? He says, weigh it up. Does it speak into your life? Does it fit with what's going on just now? I have a really good acronym for testing prophetic words and things that people speak into my life, and it's called BART, um, like Bart Simpson. You can write this down if you've got a notepad. This is gold. You're going to treasure this for the rest of your life. So BART, So B, is it biblical? Is what that person said agree with the Bible? If any part of what they've said goes against any of the teachings in the Bible, drop it. It's not from God. Secondly, A, does it have the agreement of others? When you test that word with people who know you, your friends, your family, your small group leader, your pastors, do they agree that that is a word that could fit for you? Or do all of them just say, that is definitely not right, that is definitely not okay? So the agreement of others, seek other people's um, opinions on it and people you trust and who know you. R, is it relevant for where you're at just now? Does it fit with your life? Is it something that's relevant to what's going on in your current circumstances? Is it something that makes sense for you? And then T, timing. Is it the right time for that word? You know, if you are um, not married and you haven't got a partner and you're thinking about it and somebody says, you're going to have a baby in the next month, I would probably suggest that that timing is not a right word for you at that point. So I think about the timing, does that work? So BART, that's what I do with all my prophetic words. And that's just a bit of a practical, quick snapshot on prophecy. Um, Hopefully that will be helpful. If you have any more questions about it at all, please come and ask at the end, and we would love to walk through some of that with you. But basically, Paul is calling us to be a church that prophesies over one another, that isn't afraid to take a risk and to take a chance so that people hear from God, people get a word that speaks into their lives at a right moment. And so we want to seek that as a church. We want to make space for that. We want to make sure that we get the chance to do that, but also to grow in that as well. And that's partly um, where we come on to the next part. Because the final thing that jumps out in this passage is that we have to seek order to grow depth. Paul makes it really clear that there's supposed to be a degree of order to what we do at church. And it's not just to be a total rammy where we turn up on a Sunday morning and anyone just does anything that they want. Because the church in Corinth had been a wee bit like that at this time. Basically, he'd heard that people were just doing whatever they felt like. They were just going for it. And, you know, people were talking over each other and nobody could quite understand what was going on. There were seven different people trying to preach and, you know, 40 different people praying at the same time. And nobody had a clue what was going on. And basically what that added up to was for anyone who was coming into that church for the first time seeking to meet Jesus, they didn't have a chance because it was chaos. It was madness. It was madness. Nobody had a clue what was going on. People were so focused on themselves um, that they missed out on what other people might need from church. They were so focused on their own little gifts, their own little corner, their own skills that they missed out on it. Paul says that, doesn't he? At the end of the passage, he makes it really clear. And it's not the first time he said this in 1 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. In my head, I imagine the church in Corinth to look a bit like a battle scene from Lord of the Rings, um, where there's just people running about and like heads being chopped off, and like you know nobody knows who's winning and it's utter carnage. Like that's what I basically imagine it looking like. Nobody would have had a stand, stood a chance of meeting Jesus in amongst that chaos. Um, it reminded me a wee bit, when, before I became a pastor, I've tried a few different careers unsuccessfully before I settled on this one. Um, and uh, one of those things that I started doing when I first left school, I went to train to be a primary school teacher, um, mainly because I thought, you know, those holidays, like, they are on it, aren't they? Like <laughs> I'm well up for that. But I found out it's much harder being a primary teacher than just playing in sandboxes and taking, like, 12 weeks holiday a year. So if there's any primary teachers here and people give you a hard time about your uh, profession, I salute you. I know what it's like. I've been there. Um, But basically, on my first teaching placement, uh, I went out to a place called Lanark, and I had a class full of primary two children. You know, little children, they look really sweet and innocent and cute, but you do not know what madness hides behind that cute exterior. So I remember on the first day, I made the schoolboy error of giving an instruction without a specific direction as to who it was for. I made the crucial error of saying, can someone pass me that whiteboard marker. And what happened was five children lunged for the whiteboard marker at the same time. They then wrestled it back and forth off one another, you know, kind of kicking each other and pulling out each other's hands and I had to kind of wade in and separate them. And like, they just totally like went mental. They were all so desperate to be the one, the marker bringer, the glorious position of the one who pleased the teacher that they totally just went mental in that moment. And that's a bit like what is happening in the church in Corinth. People were so desperate to be the one that people saw as the glorious word bringer or the glorious prayer or the glorious prof- prophet that they missed sight of the whole point of the church being there, which is to encourage and build and welcome people into the kingdom. And that's kind of partly a bit about, I said there was that verse, wasn't there, about. Um, women not speaking in church. And that's partly what Paul was talking about here. We've just done a massive series on women in leadership um, that Chuck did recently. So I'm not going to go on for ages about this. Like, if you want to read a wee bit more about that, please uh, go online. All the talks are on there and we'll give our stances as a church really clearly on women in leadership. But basically those verses in this context, I believe Paul wasn't saying, like women should not speak in church. The context of that verse, it's a really dangerous verse if you take it on its own and say, oh well, that's really clear then, women shouldn't be be speaking in church. But the context of that verse is that church was a new thing for women to be a part of at this point. This is the early Christian church, and up until that point women hadn't really been allowed in the synagogues with the men. Um, It just was frowned upon, they didn't do it. They hadn't had experience of what a church service looks like, what you should do, how you should act. And coupled alongside to that as well, the sad truth of the day was that women weren't educated to as high a level as men were at that point either. And so when when come into the church service for the first time, it would have been a, a whole new experience for them. There would have been a lot of questions. There would have been a lot of, what's happening here? Why are they doing that? What's going on with this? I think I want to ask a question here. And that's the context of that verse. Paul's saying, like, that's not the place for that. It's not the place for questions like that. If you want to do that, you have to ask outside the church place because there has to be order. It cannot be chaotic. And so that's the kind of context behind that verse that Paul's talking about there. And Paul writes this letter to establish really clear boundaries and instructions for what church should look like. He wants to bring order to the chaos. And he does that so that they can build a firm foundation for a church that works, don't they? And it works. We see that early church, you know, growing and multiplying. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming along because there was order and they knew what was happening and people had the opportunity to meet with Jesus where they didn't before in the chaos. And that's why we do things the way we do here at church. If you ever wonder, like, why do they do that? Why do they only have one person speaking? Can you imagine what carnage it would be like if there were seven of us up here just now, all preaching on different passages to different people, and you were trying to listen to part of one and part of another? Or if there were six worship leaders all singing different songs at the same time, and we had six screens up, and you could choose which song you sang along with. It would be chaos. No one would get anywhere. So we try and follow this model for church where there's a bit of order so that in the order we can meet with Jesus and in the the organization we can grow in depth and we can challenge one another and we can draw closer to him. And I guess what that means for us today is that we really need to invest in growing in our relationships with God and growing in the gifts that he's given us. You know, we do small groups in this church and the reason we do small groups is because Not everyone can prophesy on a Sunday morning, but everyone can get a chance to prophesy and hear a prophetic word at a small group. Not everyone can lead worship on a Sunday morning, but everyone can get a chance to lead worship on a a small group and grow in that gift. Not everyone can teach on a Sunday morning, but everyone can get a chance to teach at small group and grow that gift. Small groups are the place in our church where you grow depth, grow depth of relationship with one another and you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus. That's why we make such a big deal about it. If you've been part of our church for any period of time, you'll have heard us banging the small group drum and being like, you need to be in a small group. When you come to a welcome dinner, we tell you you need to be in a small group. On a Sunday morning, we encourage you to be part of a small group. And that's because that's where you connect. That's where you grow. That's where you gain depth of relationship with God and depth of relationship with one another. And so I would really encourage you again, banging the drum. If you're not part of a small group, please connect in with a small group, please find the time to do that. We've just had a new small group start in the last week. Um, Calm and Ailey, who are at the back there, they can give us a wave. They have just started a new small group alongside David and Susan. I don't know if Susan's in, but David's here. He can give us a wave as well. Um, If you're not in a small group, they have plenty of space. They've got loads of space for people to come and be part of their small group just now, Um, and you're getting in at the ground level, so you can claim to be a founding member. But if you're not in a small group, please go and chat to them at the end. We would love you to be a part of that. And so we have to invest, don't we? We have to make choices in our church life. We have to choose to come to church looking to encourage and not just consume. We have to choose to get stuck into small groups, to get stuck in with serving, to get stuck in, to give our all so that we can bring some order to our church life and so that people can come along at any given point and meet Jesus. We want this to be a place where there's space for people to encounter Jesus, no matter who they are, no matter where they've come from, no matter what's happened in their life, this is the place for them. And so that was what Paul was talking about here, a model for a healthy church. And that's what we're trying to do. So why don't we stand together? We're going to take some time to pray.